Ruth chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan, clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread. And dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from, some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to be, get, to be glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, This man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young, with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted." So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word this morning, that you would help us to understand just who you are and what you're doing in this great story that you have told, the story of the way you're using this young woman, Ruth, to bring about your son, the way you're working through the pain and even sin of her mother-in-law, Naomi, and 
through the faithfulness and kindness of, of this man Boaz to bring about a blessing to all nations. Father, we pray that we would understand your word and love it and repent before it. Know that you're our God and trust in your loving kindness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So when you're a single Christian person, which um, some of you in here are and the rest of you were, uh, <laughs> right? When you're a single Christian person, you're often asked about or you at least think about or you pray about getting married, right? Generally, there are a few who are committed to lifelong um, singleness, but most of the people are wanting to get married that are single. And, and frankly, what often happens is, especially in the church, they're constantly quizzed about um, what, what they're thinking about, who, who they like, et cetera, et cetera. And Christian guys, when you talk to them, they're, they're generally too simple. When you ask them, what are you looking for in a wife? And they generally say, well, she needs to be a committed Christian and she needs to be good looking. And, and that's about it. I'm not exactly sure which order those two things come in for for guys, but that's about where they stop. But when you talk to a girl, she'll like unfurl her whole list, right? Like she has a scribe or something who sits there and writes out this list of stuff. And, and it's amazing all the things that happen on the girl's list. And just don't think because the girls have a longer list that they're necessarily deeper, right? Don't think that's necessarily the case. But that's, that's what often happens. And I remember seeing some of those lists when I was in college that some of the girls had, what they thought was an ideal guy. And of course, they always had things like, well, he's a committed Christian. And, and of course, he needs to be good looking, but not self-absorbed, right? And he needs to be humorous, but have a serious side. And he needs to be easygoing, yet somewhat reflective. And he needs to be strong, but gentle. And he needs to be athletic, yet he needs to be able to sit and have talks with me while we drink coffee. And he needs to be able to protect me, but be kind to the weak. And he needs to be successful, um, but generous. And he has to be hardworking, but able to perfectly balance his time so that I get the right amount of time with him, right? And, and, and the problem is, is that, that that guy's already married to my wife, right? <laughs> Sorry, ladies. It's just not available any longer. <laughs> anyway, so you just need to take your list and burn it, right? Just set fire. <laughs> anyway, all right. Look, here's the thing. There's likely no men who are going to qualify for that. Very rarely. And guys, you probably need to be looking for something more than she says she's a committed Christian and she's good looking, right? There probably needs to be something in addition on your list. And here's the point. All of the qualities that you ought to be looking for um, as a single person, as you ought to be looking for in a potential spouse, and frankly, for those of you who are married, all the qualities you ought to be trying to embody in your marriage and your own life, they're all driven out of one primary quality. You need to look for, here's what it is, you need to look for and be someone who trusts in the Lord and in his loving kindness. And which begs a question, what does it look like to be a man or a woman who trusts in the Lord and his loving kindness? What does that look like? And so today what I want to do is I want to tell you the story of the beginning of a great romance between Ruth and Boaz. And what I want to do is I want to point out what we learn about what it looks like to be a man or a woman who trusts in God's loving kindness. In other words, if you're single, you're going to get some dating tips from some people 3,000 years ago. If you're married, you're going to learn more about what it means to be the kind of husband or wife that you ought to be. And whatever category you fit in there, 
the primary thing you're going to learn is that all of this is driven out of trusting in God's loving kindness. It's motivated by seeing who the Father is, how kind he is, and, and just wanting to respond in kind. So let's start by looking at this story of Ruth and Boaz. Um, look at verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. It's an interesting place to start because what the narrator of the story does is he starts in this place by telling you something that really doesn't go with the flow of the rest of the story, right? Because the rest of the story just dives into, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, I'm going to go out and work in the field, etc. But here at this first verse of this chapter, or of this pericope, which is this section of story in Ruth, at the first verse of it, he starts out, the narrator wants to tell us something, and I want to make two observations that we need to remember as we read the story just off of that verse. Two quick ones. Here's the first one. This verse is pointing our attention back to a prayer. In other words, what the narrator is doing is he wants, us to take it, he wants us to take notice of something. He wants to point back to a prayer. If you look back to chapter 1 and you look at verse 8, but Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to her mother's house. Now here comes the prayer. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And so Naomi is start off saying, I want the Lord to be kind to you. That's what her prayer is. I want to be kind to you. I want to show you his loving kindness. And I want him to specifically do that by giving you a husband. And the narrator starting us off with verse 1 of chapter 2 by pointing out the fact that Naomi's prayer is about to be answered. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Her prayer is about to be answered. Well, what is this idea of loving kindness, though, that she wants the Lord to give to Ruth? Well, what is Naomi asking for? This actually, the Hebrew word there in verse 8 of chapter 1 is the word hesed, and it goes throughout um, all four chapters of Ruth, goes through, through all four chapters, it's, it's used multiple times. It's often translated kindness, or in our Old Testament it'll be translated loving kindness, or it might be translated covenantal loyalty. What Hesed is is this, it's God's loving kindness. In other words, God has a desire to be kind and gracious to his people, even if it costs him personally. That's what's caught up in this term. His hesed is covenantal. In other words, he has promised it to his people and he's loyal to keep his promises. He's faithful. And so what Naomi's saying is, Ruth, I want the Lord to show you his hesed. I want him to show you his loving kindness, his covenantal faithfulness and loyalty. I want him to show you how gracious he is. I want him to show you how he will, even at cost to himself, be kind to you. And she he prays for that. Where does this come from? This whole idea of God's loving kindness, what does it drive out of in the context of a covenant? It really drives out of um, the creation and the fall. If you're familiar with what happens in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates um, everything, and then he creates a man and a woman, Adam and Eve. And he gives them the freedom to participate in enjoying his whole creation, except for one thing. They're to keep his law, and they're to stay away from the tree of the knowledge with, with has the fruit, which is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan comes and tempts Eve and Adam, and they give in to the sin, and they eat from that fruit. And when they eat from the fruit, the fall occurs. 
It's where man falls into sin and we are corrupt and we are subject now to death and decay and we're sinners. We're given over to it. And what happens in that case is that God comes and he curses mankind. He curses us. And you have a whole thing in Genesis 3 in which God lists his curses to Satan, to Eve, to Adam. And the curse goes to all mankind. But in the midst of that curse, in the midst of that curse, God says, he gives a blessing. He says this to the serpent. When he curses the serpent, he says, the seed of the woman, I'll put enmity between you and the seed of the woman. And when the seed of the woman comes, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. In other words, there's one who's coming who will crush you, Satan. There's one who's coming who will die in crushing you, but he will be victorious and he will bring blessing to God's people. And we see that initial promise in Genesis 3.15 begin to expand as God demonstrates his care for all, of, all people, the Noahic covenant, and then comes the covenant that's made with Abraham, where not only do we have this universal promise that God wants to save mankind, but we have some narrowing of it so that we understand exactly how that salvation is going to come about. What woman? She's going to be, a, this, this child is going to come from the seed of a woman, but more specifically as we narrow it down, we find out it's going to come to the seed of Abraham's family. In Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham and he makes a promise to him. He makes a covenant with Abraham. And it's the key covenant that governs, essentially, all of Scripture. And he tells Abraham, listen, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to give you offspring. And through your offspring, I'm going to bless all the nations. I'm going to bless them all. And that gets carried forth into, we see how the covenant is made. Look at Genesis chapter 15. If you could keep your hand in Ruth and look back to Genesis chapter 15, I want you to see something about the nature of this covenant blessing of the loving kindness of the Lord, the fact that he will put the cost on himself to bless mankind. God plans to keep his covenant, even if it ex as it comes to an expense to himself. Look at verse 7 of chapter 15. And he, that's Abraham, said to him, oh, excuse me, and the Lord, I'm sorry there, said to him, that's Abraham, the Lord said to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he, that being Abraham, said, O Lord God, how am I know, to know that I shall possess it? How do I know you're going to keep your promise? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half Against the, over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. What's happening here? Why in the world does God say, I want you to take some animals and I want you to cut them in half? What's the point of that? And then what I want you to do is lay them out like a trail. Just put each half on a side and lay them out like a trail. Why does God tell Abram to do that? Abram has asked him, Lord, how do I know I can keep your promise, you, that you can keep your promise? How do I know you will? How do I know that's true? And God says, let me do something with you. Cut these animals in half and lay them out like a truck. That seems like a bizarre thing to do, right? If you came, How do I know that you can keep your promise? Well, let's go get the animals in your backyard and cut them in half and lay them out, okay? That seems bizarre to us. What's happening here? In the ancient Near East, they had a, a process by which a covenant was sworn between a lord and a vassal, okay? And what would happen is that you would have someone who was 
a much more powerful guy who'd come in as a lord, and he would essentially dominate a group of people, small groups of people. And he would come to them, these vassals of people, and he would say to them, listen, I'm going to make a covenant with you. We're going to have a covenantal arrangement. And what happens in our covenant is this. I'll protect you. I'll care for you. I'll send my military to keep people, the enemy away from you. I will make sure that you are good to go. However, however, you have to serve me. You love me. You're faithful to me. And here's what we're going to do to seal the covenant. We're going to take these animals. We're going to cut them in half. We're going to make a little line spread out like this, like a lane. And you, vassal, are going to walk through those animals. And the reason you're going to walk between them is because as you walk between them, it will be a reminder to you that I'm your Lord. And if you fail to keep my covenant, if you fail to keep my covenant, then you, so you know, vassal, I'm going to do to you what was done to those animals. Got it? We're making a covenant. You walk through there. You failed to keep the covenant. I'm going to cut you to pieces just like we cut those animals to pieces. That's what they did. And so the Lord tells Abraham, you want to know if I'm going to keep my promise? Cut the animals in half and lay them out. What's interesting is what happens next. Because what a person in the ancient Near East would have expected is he would have expected that the vassal, Abraham, would walk between the animals and be warned, if you fail to keep the covenant, I'll cut you in half. That's what they would have expected, but that's not what happened. Look with me at verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. That's talking about in Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your father's in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces of animals. On this day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, etc., etc. What's happened? Who's the smoking firepot? The picture is this. And this would have absolutely floored someone in the ancient Near East. The Lord, God, makes a covenant with Abraham, and he says, split the animals in half. And he doesn't say, now, Abraham, you're my servant, so you walk through there, and if you fail to keep covenant, I'll rip you apart. What he does is that God says, I'm going to go through the animals. And the Lord walks through. And what he's saying is, if I fail to keep my promise, Abraham, may I be torn apart as those animals are torn apart. Think about that. I will be kind to you, Abraham, and even at cost to myself, because I'm going to bless you and all nations through you, even if it tears me to shreds to do it. Now, go from there forward to Galatians chapter 3. Keep your hand in Ruth still, but go to Galatians chapter 3. If you're not familiar with the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, and then Galatians. If you get to Ephesians or Philippians or Colossians, etc., you've gone too far. Galatians chapter 3, and in verse 13, Christ, Christ starts off there in verse 13. That is the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God, Christ, whom we celebrate his coming in this season, or now, redeemed us. He bought us back from the curse of the law. Hear that? We were cursed. As sinners, we were under the curse of God. But God had made a promise to bless us. So how does he do it? 
because Jesus comes and redeems us from the curse of the law, and how does Jesus redeem us from it? By becoming a curse for us. Hear that? For is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Do you hear what's happening there? Jesus is the one who walked between the animals. Because the covenant was being failed to be kept by man, but God would not fail to keep it, even at cost to himself, and so he said, I will be ripped apart, and Jesus comes, and he is cursed. He walks through the animals, and he takes the punishment so the covenant can be kept, so that God can be kind to his people. And he goes on, he says that in verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, that's in union with Christ, through faith in him, you're united to him. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that's all of God's peoples, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. See, it's God's hesed, his covenantal loyalty, his loving kindness that we're beneficiaries of in Christ. That's what Naomi is praying Ruth would experience. When we look to Jesus in faith, we're no longer under curse, but we're blessed. So when Naomi prays for God's hesed to be upon Ruth, she's praying for God's loving kindness. She's asking God to bless Ruth with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, with every spiritual blessing he promised to give his people. She's asking God even further to show Ruth his loving kindness by providing her with the husband and with children. And the narrator of our story knows that. And so as he goes into this next scene, what he wants us to do is not forget the last scene. Remember, Naomi prayed for God's hesed, his covenantal loving kindness and blessing to be shown to Ruth. And, he pr- and she prayed that not only would that happen, but she would be given a husband and children. Remember that. Don't forget that. That's the narrator starting out. And I want you to take notice of Boaz right at the beginning. The second little observation is that when we read a narrative, we have more than one perspective happening in the narrative. So you have the perspective of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi that goes through the story, right? But the other perspective you have is the narrator's perspective, which in a sense is as if the narrator sits back from the story and he wants to point at things to you. And you're gonna see both perspectives as we go through the story. And the first verse, you have the narrator's perspective. He's pointing out to you, pay attention. Remember Naomi's prayer? Pay attention. Pay attention to this man named Boaz. He may be, in fact he is, the answer to Naomi's prayer for Ruth. So pay attention to him. Thus we have the statement at the beginning. So understanding that, let's look at this from the perspective of Ruth and Boaz and the narrator as we see this romance unfold. Verse two. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. There was a law in ancient Israel that God had given that if you have a field, you're a more wealthy person. You have a field, you, can, you provide your crops. You have to leave the outside edges of that field untouched so that the poor could come and glean from it. That gave the poor a chance to be able to eat. So God was always providing for all of his people. And so what he said is, listen, you've got to leave that open. And so what we know about Ruth and Naomi is they have no husband, neither one of them. They're both dead. Their husbands are dead. They have no money. They have no resources. They're poor. And so Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, is quite old. And so Ruth says, Naomi, I'm going to go out and glean from the field so we have some food. And so that's what you see happening here. Verse 3. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. And by the way, that word, she happened. If you look at it in the Hebrew, it isn't just that brief as she happened. It's like she happened to happen upon. 
It was by happenstance. And the narrator's doing something here. See, in Ruth's experience, in Naomi's experience, Ruth, and Naomi, Ruth is just happening upon the right field, right? It's just sort of a coincidence. But what the narrator wants us to do is, wants to do is he wants to point to something a little deeper than that. She thinks she's just happening upon the right field, like, wow, I can't believe I walked into the field of one of our redeemers, a man who could take care of us. She doesn't know that. But God's saying, through the narrator, this wasn't unintentional. This, this is intentional. God is at work here. So he goes on, verse four, or sorry, keep going. Part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Something that's emphasized again and again because to be, he needs to be of the clan of Elimelech in order to be the redeemer we're gonna look at in a little while. Verse four, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. That's a specific covenantal blessing. I want the Lord to be with you because God's blessing is I will be your God and you will be my people. And what Boaz is saying specifically to his people is I want God to be with you. I want you to be his people and for him to be your God. It isn't, he's just not making a throwaway statement. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? Now you can see the scene, right? Ruth is out there and from the, the text we come to find out that, that Boaz is quite attracted to Ruth. He's, he'll later point out essentially that, you know, I'm surprised that none of the men have come after you yet because he recognizes that she's attractive in his mind. And so he, he sees her over there gleaning from the field like other people would be, and he takes special notice of her, and he's like, whose young woman is this, right? You guys know that scene, when that, what that looks like, right? He's taking notice of her. He wants to know, is she married to anybody? Who's her dad? Who do I talk to about this young woman? I remember when I first met my wife, I was in college, and I'd heard her name on campus, but I had never met her, and I was walking back to my dorm, and she was on a hill talking to the residence director from my dorm, and they were, they were exchanging master keys for something, and I was walking by, and I saw her, and I'm just casually walking by, and I turned, and I was like, who's this? You, you know what that's like, right? And then we started talking, and, and to her dismay, we're married now. So, so he points out, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. And so there's this emphasis that this woman has come. She's the woman who's taking care of Naomi, the widow. She's come from Moab to do that, emphasizing her character, and she's working hard all day. Verse 8, then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one. In other words, you can hang out here all you want. But keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. So he's saying to her, listen, you go glean all you want. Hang out with my young women. That's a special invitation. She's able to glean even more effectively than she was because she's with his young women. And he said, I'm protecting you from my young men because I know what those brutes are like, right? So I've told them not to touch you. But when you go and want some water, you can go over there and get some water. And it goes on. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your, for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. 
You see the emphasis of Boaz here? I know who you are, Ruth. I've heard all about you from the townspeople. Remember when they came into town at the end of chapter one, all the people in town were talking about them being there. I've heard about you. You're the woman who walked away from everything to follow the Lord. You're the woman who said, in the face of very harsh providential circumstances, where your husband has died, your father-in-law's died, your brother-in-law's died, your sister-in-law is gone, you and your mother-in-law are now poor, on your own, destitute, away from your family and friends, away from the gods you knew, you left everything because you trust in the Lord, because you've taken refuge under his wings. You're trusting his goodness. I've heard about you. And now I see you in my field, and you're working hard. All day long, you're working hard to serve your mother-in-law. I've heard about you, and now I've seen your hard work. And incidentally, I've seen you, right? And I'm impressed. And he goes on. Verse 13, then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. In other words, the courting ritual has begun. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. He just piled up her plate, right? Ruth, let me take care of you. She had some left over and when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. In other words, she doesn't have to go on the outside of the field. The stuff you've already gathered, that, you, let her go even gather that stuff. Let her, do all that she, let, let her have all that she wants to have. And also put, pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. So you know that's about 30 pounds of barley. She has to take it, and, and, and she had to go through and take out all the grain, and when she got it, 30 pounds, she's going to carry back home, right? And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law, that's Naomi, saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, which you would expect, right? Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you, Right? So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And that phrase there in Hebrew can either be that the Lord's kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead or that Boaz's kindness, depending on the grammar of it, that maybe he be blessed by the Lord because his kindness or Boaz's kindness has not forsaken the living for the sake of the dead. In other words, he's, he's caring for the living of the dead relatives. Um, and it, it's hard to know, but it really doesn't matter, and here's why. The point is that God has been kind, and now Boaz is demonstrating that same kind of kindness. Saying, let him be blessed because he, he's just like the Lord, he's kind. Naomi also said to her, and I want you to hear what Naomi's doing here, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. What's that about? In, in this culture, what happened is, when you came back, if you were without a husband, then what would happen is the nearest living family member, male family member in your clan, could take you as his wife. He could redeem you. And when he took you as his wife, not only could he take you as his wife, but then he would buy back the land which your family owned. And it would get returned to you on the year of Jubilee, that's after 50 years, but 
a man needed to step into that, into that place. And so he was gonna buy back the land. He could, he could do that. He could take care of Ruth. He could redeem her and become her husband. And that also would mean he would be taking care of the mother-in-law, Naomi. And so you can see the scene as you have this old aging woman, right? Naomi, hoping that her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who's young and godly and all these things, will get married again, will be redeemed. And she sees Ruth walk into the house with this huge bag of barley, right? And then she finds out that not only did she walk into the house with that huge bag of barley, some man has taken notice of her in a serious way, but then Naomi also knows or finds out that this is Boaz, one of our redeemers. He's a man who could marry you, Ruth. Do you hear what's happening here? This is like the Christian setup, isn't it, right? You're a single gal, and, uh, and you've you, you got a Christian mom who's always wanting you to get married, and she sees some young man, and she goes, look, he's, he's a potential Right? I don't know if your moms do that. They should. They should be taking notice for you, unless they're, unless they're off, and then you might want to ask somebody else. But the point is, they ought to be taking notice for you in some way. And that's what happens to young men as well. I, I know as a pastor, I've pointed out to girls, hey, that, that guy would be legit right there. You ought to talk to him. Right? He's one you could marry. He fits the category. It's essentially what Naomi's doing here. She's in the dating business at this point. Right? She's a bit like um, our own Ashley Horner right? She loves to match people up. That's what Naomi's doing. She's matching somebody up here. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. In other words, it's even more. He's taking care of us for the rest of the harvest. The next four months, he's going to be watching out for us. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go with, this, with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So there's a story as we see it begin to develop. In chapter 3, the story gets a little saucier, but there's a story as we see it start to develop. But there's some things that we learn about these two, some lessons we learn from Ruth and Boaz as to what it means to look like someone who's trusting in the Lord's hesed, the Lord's kindness, and thus showing his kindness to other people. What does it look like to be that kind of person? Let me point out first some things we learn from Ruth. And single men, I want you to pay attention to this because it's the kind of woman you ought to be looking for. And single women, you ought to pay attention to this because it's the kind of woman you ought to be striving to be. And married women, you ought to be paying attention to because it's the kind of woman you're supposed to be as well. Right? You don't say, well, I'm already married, so he's just stuck. Right? That, that's, what, that's what men try, can tend to do. I was, in, I was in good shape before Teresa fell in love with me right out of the army, right? Now she's just stuck. Right? Okay? So Ruth, she's hardworking, verse 7. Verse 7, look at what it says there. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Ruth is a woman who worked hard. She wasn't lazy. She was hardworking. This is what God had given her to do. And she said, I'm going to put my hand to it and I'm going to work hard at it. The second thing we see is that she's not entitled or complaining. She isn't an entitled woman or a complaining woman, but a thankful one. You notice she says, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. Here's the thing. The law already permitted her to do that. The law already permitted her to glean. But she even makes the requests, can I? Please let me. Because what Ruth is doing is she's saying she's not running around as some person who thinks she's entitled. She's thankful. And verse 10 goes on and talks about this. Then she fell on her face, bowed to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? In other words, she's just falling to her face, thanking Boaz for taking care of her. I didn't deserve any of this, and you're caring for me. Thank you. 
So she's not only hardworking, but she's thankful. She's humble and self-sacrificing as a servant. Verse 11, look at verse 11. But Boaz answered, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. See, her whole life is given over to caring for her mother-in-law. She's given everything up to care for this person because she's a humble, self-sacrificing servant. She's thankful. She's hardworking. That's this woman. She trusts in the Lord. Look at verse 12. The Lord repay you for what you've done. This is Boaz talking to her. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. She's resting under the wings of the Lord. That's that's an imagery for the fact that she's trusting the Lord to care for her. She believes in his goodness and his kindness. That's the kind of woman Ruth is. She rests in God even in the face of harsh providential circumstances. Have you ever met a woman, I've met several even in this church, who rest in the Lord even in the midst of very difficult circumstances in life? They rest in him. They trust in him. I'll tell you, there's nothing more attractive than a woman who can trust in the Lord in the midst of difficult circumstances. She's the kind of woman who trusts in the Lord and has care for her. She believes he'll be good to her. She gives her life to the service of others for the good of others. What she says, I trust the Lord's good to me, and so you know what I want to be about? I want to be about the good of other people. This is talked about, incidentally, this kind of woman is discussed in Proverbs 31, If you want to look there really briefly, you don't have to. I'll read some of it to you, but you'll hear some of the same description of a woman. Hardworking, thankful, self-sacrificing, trusting in the Lord, looking after the good of other people. Verse 10 of Proverbs 31, an excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. Why does her husband's heart trust in her? She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Why does she do that? Because she trusts in the goodness of the Lord. She's looking after the good of others. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchants. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it's yet night and provides food for her husband and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arm strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hands to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. In other words, here's a woman who works hard, is constantly caring for the needs of other people. She wants the good of her husband and not his harm. She wants the good of others. Verse 21, she's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Why is he known? He's known as a man who's respected by his wife. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchants. Strength and dignity are clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She does not worry. In the face of harsh providence, she trusts the Lord and laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. 
Charm is deceitful and beauty is gain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. You guys hear that picture? That's what a godly woman looks like. Peter carries over some of the same ideas in 1 Peter chapter 3 when he addresses young single women. He tells them, or excuse me, 1 Peter 3 addresses young married women. He says, submit to your husbands as the Lord. And he tells them to do that even if they don't believe in God. Why? Because you're, you can be the kind of woman who trusts the Lord, that the Lord has your good in mind. And if the Lord has your good in mind, you can seek his good all the time. Interestingly enough, when you're seeking his good all the time, that actually might change him. That's what 1 Peter 3 gets at. Single men, you ought to be looking for this kind of, women, this kind of woman. That's what you ought to be looking for. Single women, you ought to spend your time and your energy becoming the right kind of woman rather than looking for the right kind of man. The Lord will provide. Married women, you ought to spend your time becoming the right kind of woman rather than worrying about when your husband will become the right kind of man. According to 1 Peter 3, actually being the right kind of woman may actually contribute to your husband becoming the right kind of man. Let's look at Boaz briefly. Single men, I want you to take notice, and married men as well, and single women, this is the kind of guy you ought to be looking for. And the first thing I want to say about Boaz is not that he's rich, though he is. Okay, so you don't look at this and go, well, Boaz is rich, I should look for a rich guy. Okay? That's not a bad thing, but that's not the point I want to get at. First thing is this, Boaz is God-centered. He's a God-centered man. Verse four, what does he come into his people and say? The Lord be with you. What's Boaz's interest? He not only cares about his workers and how it's going for them, but he wants them to know the Lord and be blessed by the Lord's loving kindness. That's what he's interested in. That's the kind of man he is. He's a God-centered kind of man. He's interested in what the Lord is interested in. Second, Boaz cares for the weak and the needy. What, does he, what do we find out right about him right away? He provided a place for the poor, the poor to glean, didn't he? Provided a place for them. And he wanted to bless Ruth and Naomi even more because he knew about their need. This is the kind of guy who cares about the things of the Lord, who is deeply God-centered, and who cares about the needs of others, particularly the weak and the poor and the downtrodden. That's this guy. I'm gonna throw in this last one. He's a man. You hear that? And not a boy who can shave. You guys hear that? He's a man. He isn't like these adolescent boys we have running around, living in their mom's house, playing video games all day. He's not that guy, okay? He's a full-grown, real, godly man. And he shows that in his respect for Ruth. He respects her right off. He shows that in that he immediately wants to protect her from harm, doesn't he? He sees her, he likes her, and what does he think? I'm gonna keep the men from raping her, from doing cruel things to her, so he gives out orders and protects her and watches out for her immediately. He shows that in the fact that he wants to provide for her. He wants to provide for her. That's what men do. Men desire to provide and protect. That's what they do. That's what they do. Listen, men are not the kind of guys who still need their mommy to provide for them and protect them, okay? Men step out and learn to provide for others and protect others. That's what a man is. So girls, if you might meet a single guy and, and he still needs his mom to like, you know, take care of everything for him, okay? If he can't seem to get a job no matter what, he just, just no, he just can't seem to get a job, never work, stay away from that dude. Let him grow up, right? Don't marry him so that you become his next mom, okay? Let him grow up. Go find a man. And guys, you need to be a man. Some of you young guys, it drives me nuts. Jason and I meet with you, and I'm gonna tell you guys, we love you guys, uh, but we just wanna put our head through the wall sometimes. 
Because you just refuse to grow up. You just refuse to do hard things. Someone will bail you out. Someone will take care of you. And and, and it needs to stop. You need to become a man. That's what men do. Women look for that guy. Men become that guy. And by the way, it's not just single guys I'm talking about here. There are married guys that are this way, aren't there? Their wives take care of everything. Everything. They take care of everything. If you want to meet some, if you meet some guy girls who is constantly skirt chasing, who has no job, who still lives with his mom, who's constantly being taken care of, who pokes fun at weak people or is generally a bully, stay away from that guy. I don't want to lose sight, though, of what drove Ruth and Boaz to be this kind of man and woman. Because it's easy to beat you up and say, be this kind of man, be that kind of woman. But I don't want to lose sight of what drives them to that. Because there's something that drives them to that. What motivates them? And it's this, they trust in the Lord's goodness, his kindness, his hesed. They trust in him. And because they trust in his loving kindness, they become the kind of people who are loving and kind in response. So the question is, are you looking to the Lord in faith? Are you resting in the fact that you're his child, that he loves his children in such a way as he will pay a great cost to show them kindness and grace? If you look at Ephesians 5, I, I, I want you to look there with me real quickly because I want you to see what drives godliness. It's not just that you're empowered by the Holy Spirit, but it's that your motivation changes because of the status of your relationship with the Father changes. And look with me at Ephesians 5 and verse 1. <clears throat> He's come off of just saying in verse 32 that you ought to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And he says, God forgave you in Christ. Now, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Do you hear that? Be imitators of God as beloved children. What drove Boaz to be a man, the kind of man he was? It's that he wanted to imitate his father. He wanted to imitate him. He provides. He protects. He's kind to the weak, and he's kind to the poor. He doesn't take advantage. He's not entitled. He's, a, he, he's holy. He's all these things, and he has been good to me. And because he's been good to me, I want to be good to other people. I want to be like him. He's a dad who's been kind to me, and so I want to be, ki- I want to be kind to others because of him. It's the same thing with Ruth. She knows the Lord and his kindness. She wants to be like him. She wants to be like him. And that's what Paul's saying. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Now listen, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Look, analogies only go so far, okay? So I'm gonna share an analogy and I don't want you to push it to every logical point that the analogy could be. I just wanna use the analogy to make one point. It's an analogy I've learned from being a dad. Um, I have a son and a daughter and every night, or most nights at least, when I'm home and all that, I go in with my son and pray with him and read some scripture with him. And my wife goes in with my daughter and prays with her and reads scripture with her, et cetera, as we're putting them to bed. And when I go in there with him, sometimes he's, um, he's a real sensitive sort of soul. It's not like his dad. Um, he, he, just, he starts getting overwhelmed by his sin, starts crying, et cetera, et cetera, telling me how, how, how bad a person he is. Um, and I'm like, son, you know, and having to talk him through this and trust in the Lord, etc. But one night, we, I was in his room, and he was confessing sin to me, which I didn't find to be all that um, consequential like he did. Um, I said, well, that's not good, and we need to re- con- 
repent of that, and yes, that's a sin, and let's ask God's forgiveness, etc. but he's overwhelmed by it, and we went on and on, and so I talked him through the gospel, and I just talked him through the gospel, and, I to- and we prayed, and he asked God's forgiveness, and I said, okay, and then I looked at him, and I said, I, I, I want you to know something, Jared, and I, I, I've told him this for years. I'm proud of you. I, I'm not proud of what you did, but I'm proud of you, and he said to me, he says, Dad, how could you be proud of me? How could you be proud of me? Look what I just did. I said, I said listen, son, my, I'm not proud of you because of your performance. I'm proud of you because you're my son. You're my son, so I'm proud of you. Not because of how you perform for me, but because you're my son. I'm proud of you. And he looked at me and he said, you know, you know what, Dad? You know what that makes me want to do? That makes me want to be just like you. And I was sort of stunned because I realized that God said to Jesus, his son, the one in whom he's well pleased, he said to him on the cross, you're cursed. He said to him on the cross, you're damned. I hate you. So that to Jesus on the cross. Why? So that by looking to Jesus, as his people look to him, by resting in Jesus, we can be forgiven our sins and adopted as his sons. And so he can say to us, as his sons, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. You're no longer that sinner, that enemy. You're my child, my perfect, holy son. You're not only forgiven, you're not only washed clean, you're seen as being my faithful and holy child. The one to whom I say, my delight is in you. I'm proud of you. Listen, not because of anything we did, but because of what Jesus did on our behalf and being adopted as his children. I don't know about you, but that kind of loving kindness, that kind of loving kindness once just makes me want to say, I want to be just like you, Dad. I want to be just like you. You'd be that kind to me. And that's, that's what's happening in the life of Ruth and Boaz. They want to be just like him because he's kind to them, even at cost to himself. And that's what to drive us. Let me pray. Father, we ask, we ask that we would be people who trust in you and your kindness. People who are thankful for what you've done in Jesus. And as a result, we want to be like you. We want to imitate you. You have been kind to us beyond anything we deserve and we're thankful. We pray, we pray, Father, that the people who don't know you here today, that aren't looking to your son in faith, we pray that you would demonstrate your kindness to them. You would draw them out of darkness. You would let them open their eyes so they see the light, so they would see your kindness in the cross. They would turn to you in faith and trust in you. Pray for the rest of us, Father, that we, as those who know you, that we would be people who look to you and trust in your loving kindness. Father, as a result, we'd want to imitate you and be men and women of God who, who look like our dad in the way that we behave, the way our attitudes are shaped. You would help that to happen in our hearts, in our lives, by the work of your Holy Spirit as we look, as we look and gaze upon your goodness, your kindness to us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.